So we are starting a series this morning, um, a short four-week series, on our purpose statement and our values. So this morning is going to be a look at our purpose statement, and then the next three weeks are three values, gospel, community, and mission, right? So we usually do this about once a year. It helps us know what we're aiming at and reminds us of what's important. Um, so as we begin here, I want you to just think with me. Um, if you've ever had to put something together, uh, maybe this happened at Christmas, uh, whether it was something that you put together for yourself or for somebody else in your family. Um, let's say it's a piece of Ikea furniture or a Lego set or even a puzzle. It could probably, this could probably apply. You open the box, right, and you lay everything out. And then what do you do next? You read the instructions, right? No, not a lot of you don't do that, right? Okay. Um, and you take it step by step if you're actually one of those people that reads the instructions. So sometimes that micro view, the step by step, can get a little hard to understand. You kind of lose the forest for the trees. And what do you do? You pick up the box and look at the big picture. And doesn't that help? Sometimes like, oh, I see where we're headed. Like, I see how that fits in. And so you get back into the trees and you can make your way through. Likewise, if you just looked at the completed picture on the Lego box or the Ikea box or what are we looking at? Puzzles, whatever it is. Um, and you never get down to the detailed step in the instructions. How many of you have ever done this? Like, oh, I know how this goes together. <laughs> and then you've got like pieces left over at the end. And you're like, oh man, where does that go? <laughs> because you skip steps because you were just thinking you knew where you were going. You just looked at the big picture and you should have paid more attention to the steps. So all of that to say we need both. We need the big picture view. We also need the step-by-step -step view. And in a sense, this series will be a little bit of both. Okay, so actually a little bit of both at the big picture level. Like this first week is the big picture. The next three weeks are a little bit more of a step-by-step -step for how we live out our purpose. Um, but also, each week should be that way. So hopefully we'll see the big picture this morning. We'll also see how do we live this thing out this morning. And then as we look at each of the three values, we'll see kind of the bird's eye view as well as some step-by-step -step stuff as well. And most likely, I think this is going to be the case, we're going to stay in First Peter for the whole thing. So this morning, it's First Peter 2, 9 to 12. And... We'll look at some other texts and keep coming back to 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12 in the next three weeks, okay? So here we go. Um, big picture, what are we here for? Like, and I don't mean just in this building at 1217 Wilson Road. What are we here on planet Earth for? What are we aiming at and how do we get there? So the way that we state it here at Bethel um, is that we exist to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ. 
for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. All right, so we'll come back to that a few times this morning, but that is our purpose statement. We exist to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. So our passage, if you're not open to 1 Peter, go ahead and head back there, and we're going to look at verses 9 to 12. I'll read 1 to 12, so we caught a little bit of context, but we're going to look at just verses 9 to 12 this morning. All right. So there's five points. Um, First point is formation and reflection. So what are human beings for? Why did God create us? What's the goal? What's the purpose? What's God's reason or motive in creating us? Actually, that's two different questions. If we're being technical, when you ask the question why, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, you may be asking for a cause and you may be asking for a goal. Everybody with me? Just making sure you're awake, like, or trying to get you to start thinking here with me. So why does this exist is a different question sometimes if we're talking about origin then why does this exist in terms of purpose? You see? Two different questions. Sometimes they're the same, like, why does the automobile exist? Well, we wanted to get from point A to point B faster. That was, I'm sure, the motivation. Why does an automobile exist? What's its purpose? To get from point A to point B faster than on a horse or walking or whatever. But sometimes it's different. Why does penicillin exist? Well, in a sense, it's kind of like an accidental find. Um, So the cause came out of a happy accident. Why does penicillin exist? Well, its purpose is to treat bacterial infections. And actually, you could probably press, press in or push back on me and say, well, well, why was he even interested in this accidental thing? And because he knew that bacterial, whatever the heck that guy's name was, what was his name? Stokey or... It doesn't matter. Okay, anyway, so why do human beings exist? What motivated God to create us, and what is our purpose? Well, God wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored. He had no needs. The consistent testimony of Scripture is that God created humanity for his glory. Just two examples, Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. He says, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. A little bit later in Isaiah 48, verses 9 to 11, why does God do what he does? Well, in this instance, what he's addressing, he says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. Why am I deferring my anger? For the sake of my glory, my name, my reputation. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Why? For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So we exist to reflect God's infinite worth for his glory. 
or the Westminster Catechism famously asks and answers it this way. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Actually, there's a really insightful thing going on there. What's the chief? How many does that refer to? How many answers, in a sense, did those Scotch divines give? Two? Are they confused? Or do those two things go together inextricably, like heads and tails, like two sides of the same coin, to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Um, We talk about glorifying God, the glory of God, all the time in the church. Um, This is definitely one to read slowly, but there's a guy named Christopher Morgan who has a book called The Glory of God, and there's a lot packed in here, but I'm going to read a quote to you here about glorifying God and the glory of God. So the God who is intrinsically glorious, he possesses glory, graciously and joyfully displays his glory, largely through his creation, his image bearers, through providence and redemptive acts. God's people respond by glorifying him, ascribing glory to him. God receives glory and through uniting them to the glorious Christ, shares his glory with them, all to his glory. It could be argued, these are actually his parentheses, by the way, but I'm not going to read them all. Um, It could be argued that the entire biblical plot line of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation is the story of God's glory. Okay, so the purpose of our existence, whether we as human beings embrace it or not, the purpose for which we were created is to glorify God. Has that ever in any of your ears or maybe even presently, does that sound like prideful of God? Does it sound like God's like a celestial egomaniac? Has anybody ever been bothered by that? I've had a number of people ask me that over the years. So let me just address this quickly. Remember, God wasn't needy. He wasn't lonely. He didn't create to get because he didn't need anything, right? Acts 17 says it like this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God is this overflowing fountain of life and love and goodness he created to share his glory with creatures made in his image. Well, what's the best thing that he could give us? Himself. Forever. If we put those together, I heard eternal life, but if it's eternal life without him, that's hell. If it's only him for a little time, that would be disappointing. The best thing he could give give us is himself. And so he gets the glory and we get the joy. That's how God set it up. How cool is that? Because the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Those are two sides of the same coin. The things you most enjoy are the things that you 
by your life draw attention to their worth. You magnify their worth. So he gets the glory, we get the joy. That's how he set things up. He's the sun, the source of all light. We get to bask in that light. We get to warm ourselves in the light of his loving face, be satisfied in the warmth of his loving embrace. We're happy, he's hallowed. And not only do we get to bask in that light, we then reflect that light. He's the sun, we're the moon. You could say it that way. We're the moons. Because we all give off the light of what we love. You ever notice that? That's how we're wired. That's how we're made. Spend a little time around somebody and it usually doesn't take too long to find out what's most important to them. What they really value and treasure and prize and enjoy and love. What makes them come alive? Because as human beings, we praise what we value. We proclaim what we prize. We reflect what we revere. Since I'm so into alliteration, I'm just, you know. Proclaim what we prize. We reflect what we revere. We commend what we cherish. We seek what we savor. That's enough. (laughs) So we set our lives like a telescope on perceived gain and we magnify its worth to the watching world. So again, obviously God's not a celestial egomaniac. He's the most loving being in the universe. He created us in his image to receive his glory and reflect his glory. He wanted to share himself with us, the greatest treasure in the universe. And when we receive that great treasure, we can't help but gush over him and share him with others, spreading his glory through the earth. So moons to the sun. So all this goes with like the original commission in the Garden of Eden to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So if Adam and Eve were the original little moons to the sun, as they were blessed by God and fruitful and multiply, the light of God just starts to multiply and fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And God's glory is just everywhere. So how are we doing at that? How's humanity doing at that original commission? Filling the earth with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Point number two, deformed to transformed. So what's the world filled with? I mean, isn't it depressing to look at your, if you read your news on your app, the headlines? What's the world filled with? It's filled with idolatry and injustice and violence and darkness and hate and strife and war and on and on and on. I mean, God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. Chris Elliott reminded us of that last week from 1 John. But this world is filled with with darkness, we have been deformed. We've all worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. We've been spiritual prostitutes and adulteresses. Deformed, we have turned in on ourselves, become darkened rather than living up in the light of his glory and then shining that out we turn in on ourselves we're distorted and broken and shattered 
We love the darkness. We hide. We prefer it. So we were deformed by sin. It distorts the lens of our lives. It dirties the lens of our lives. We don't reflect the light of God's glory. We prefer the darkness. That's where we all were. And there could be some of you still there this morning. In fact, that's perhaps part of why we can be so fixated on our image. So a guy that I knew when we lived in Chicago, Chris Castaldo, he wrote a book called Holy Ground and he wrote this. What a shameful heritage of sin and death the human race now separated from God tries desperately to restore its shattered image. By accumulating the trappings of the world, we pursue everything that promises wholeness. We're shattered, we want to be whole. Money, leisure, sex, power, fashion, corporate promotion. Sadly, many people reach the end of their lives surrounded by these hollow emblems, only to find that the promise of prosperity and personal satisfaction was a sham. Here in a culture haunted by fragmentation, high-tech distractedness, and the loneliness of individualism, our hearts remain empty theaters of longing. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us to die in this deception. Jesus, the visible image of God's glory, has decisively addressed humanity's problem. So we've been trying to recover or create our, recreate our image ever since the fall. It's pervasive. It's constant. We care what people think about us. We want to look good. We want to turn heads. We want to impress. It's why we care so much about our looks, our clothes, our makeup, our body, our physique, our resume, our success, our position, even our friend group. We want to show that we have it all together. When you look at a picture, who do you look at first? We look at ourselves first because we want to see how we look. We like that picture or we don't. We want to look good. We want those pictures to be a good reflection of who we are. We care about the impressions we make. We care about how we look on social media. That's why it can be, you know, airbrushed and edited and, and so forth, curated so much. We look in the mirror. We want to be pleased with our image, with what we see. But it is never, like we're never going to be pleased with what we see, even if we had light years of self-care and self-improvement and looking within or looking to the approval of others or to worldly success for validation. What we need does not come from in here, but it comes from looking to Jesus. Only when we look at him when we see ourselves in the light of his face, we see our need, we see his provision, only then can this internal restlessness and brokenness, the deformity, the, like we're, we're uncomfortable in our own soul's skin. Sin and guilt and shame, only then forgiven and cleansed and remade can can that restlessness be settled and secure? So, so think of the gospel through this lens of image. Okay, we were made in the image of God to reflect the glory of God, to spread the glory of God throughout the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. But that image 
shattered, like we're supposed to be mirrors, if you want to use the mirror image, reflecting. That mirror is shattered by sin, deformed and broken. So what we image forth is not the glory of God, but humanity's vain attempts at self-glory. So we have failed to be the God-glorifying, glory-spreading image bearers we were intended to be. God then sends forth his son. We failed. He sent forth his son, the image of the invisible God. He is what it looks like to be human. He is humanity whole. And he succeeded where we failed. He lived the life we failed to live. He was the perfect reflection and representative of the glory of God. And he radiated the light of God and spread it everywhere he went. And then on the cross, he is disfigured and shattered, not for his sin, but for ours, so that we could be recreated, remade. Adam and Eve made in God's image to reflect his glory. We can be remade so that we can once again reflect the glory of God. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, so that we can once again fulfill our purpose, reflecting the glory of God. So, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of, of Jesus Christ. You see the comparison between creation, let there be light, and recreation, redemption, let there be light. And then 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image our image was shattered and broken. Jesus is the perfect image. We're being remade into his image. As we behold him with the eyes of faith, empowered by the Spirit, we see him, we love him, we want to be like him, and we are changed from one degree of glory to the next. Because God's purpose in all of this, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The image restored so that we can once again image forth the glory of God, spread that glory through the earth for God's glory and the good of all peoples, whether those peoples are your next door neighbor, the people right around you, or the nations to the ends of the earth. So let's look at how our passage explains this. 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10 to start here. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is incredible. There is so much grace here. If you are in Christ, let's just walk down through this. If you are in Christ, then that means you're not in Adam. Okay, there's actually two races of humanity. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you are a chosen race. If you know the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, chosen 
exiles, the dispersion. So you may be an exile on earth. You know, this world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. But you are chosen because God has graciously, mercifully, lovingly chosen you, set his affection on you, and made you his own. That is awesome. That is marvelous grace that we were singing of er earlier. But that's not all. You're not just a chosen race, even though that's awesome. If you are in Christ, you are also a royal priesthood. The church, the people of God, a royal priesthood. What in the world is that all about? Well, it's actually an allusion to Exodus 19. So after the people of Israel were brought out of slavery in Egypt, they, they camped in the wilderness you know, by Mount Sinai, Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are given. Well, Exodus 19, Moses goes up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So a royal priesthood. What, what was a priest? He was one who mediated the mercy and grace of God to the people. There's God and sinful people and atonement needed to be make, made and the priest mediated that atoning work. So why would the whole nation of Israel, all the people of God, be called a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood? Why, why is that? Because they as a people were supposed to mediate the mercy and grace of God to the nations. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. So yes, there were priests in Israel, but the whole people of God was supposed to be priest-like in the way that they were a light to the nations. And they failed, right? But Jesus was victorious. And now, if you are in Christ, he's the light of the world, you are a royal priesthood, and you can be lit by grace to be a light to the nations. So we exist to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples, all nations. But that's not all. Not only a chosen race, not only a royal priesthood, but also a holy nation. Did you hear that phrase also in Exodus 19? So again, echoing Exodus 19, 5 to 6. So we, the church of Jesus, are holy. We are set apart. We belong to God. Which leads naturally into the next description of who we are. We are a people for his own possession. Again, that echoes Exodus 19, 5 to 6. So the whole point is that redemption, that exodus like out of slavery work from Egypt, it was, you know, God displaying his powerful work but they were still slaves of sin and they grumbled in the wilderness and they fell. The work of Jesus on the cross is a greater exodus. 
and it delivers us from slavery to sin and actually restores us to our purpose as human beings to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So, out of all the peoples on the earth, if you're in Christ, if you're a part of the church, you are God's treasured possession. We are his sheep. He's our shepherd. We belong to him. He's not cold and matter-of-fact about that ownership. We are his treasured possession. So the nations are in darkness. We've been set apart by God. We dwell in the light, distinct from the world, with God. I mean, isn't it sweet that you are no longer in the darkness? Do you remember what it was like? Do you remember when you were blind and kind of wandering around spiritually in the dark? I love the way Paul prays in Colossians 1. At the end of that prayer, he prays that they will give thanks to the Father who has qualified them, and we can speak of ourselves as well, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we're in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved Son. What are we doing here? How do we get here? It's not that we were smarter or we brought more to the table than other people. I mean, what was it that qualified us to share in the inheritance, this infinitely valuable inheritance, never perish, spoil, or fade? It's kept in heaven. Well, look at Colossians 1.13. You were delivered. You were transferred. It was done to you. Like, we've got nothing to boast about. We can just say, like, all to the praise of his glorious grace. Oh, the mercy and kindness and love of God to call me, to call us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's so marvelous. I mean, all of these things that have been described about who we are, it's marvelous. Think back. Don't forget. I know for me, it's so easy to just be thinking about today and all I've got to do and whatever, and I forget where I've come from and what God has saved me out of. It just hit me even on a prayer walk this week, just like overwhelmed where I was and how blind and dead and like on a path of self-destruction and God just plucked me from that path. I can't take any credit for it. I can't say, well, you know, I am pretty spiritually Savvy and said, No, he just mercifully reached down and arrested my attention and made me his own. And if you're in Christ, he did the same thing for you. Stories are all different, but it's the same thing. Marvelous, marvelous grace. Being rescued from the domain of darkness, transferred from that place to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the beloved Son. I mean, isn't that marvelous? (laughs) If anything is marvelous, that is marvelous. So we need to think back. We need to not forget. I I think, I don't know about you, but singing those songs this morning was a rehearsal of what God has done. And the song actually starts to rise, doesn't it? You start to willingly proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you when you are reminded of what he's done. Like, I can come in here pretty cold 
spiritually speaking, on a Sunday. Anybody else with me? And you need the fire to kind of get stoked and, you know, your, your heart to kind of be woken up. Well, I'm thankful it happened for me this morning. I hope it did for you as well. But as we rehearse all of this grace that's ours, we just say, oh God, you are so excellent. This marvelous grace, marvelous light that you've brought me into, and we begin to praise him, proclaim his excellencies. So let's not forget. Let's think of who we are. Let's think of whose we are. Let's think of what is ours, and let's not think lightly of it. If we forget or assume or think lightly of these things, we won't proclaim them. We'll hide our light under a bushel. So if that wasn't enough to show how excellent God is in all of his merciful, gracious, loving glory, how marvelous is his redemptive work, he goes on in verse 10 to quote Hosea the book of, from the book of Hosea, okay? So if you know the context of the book of Hosea, Hosea is this prophet, and God wants him to marry a prostitute. And they have some kids, and then she goes and is promiscuous again, and he says, go back and bring her back to yourself. Like, you're supposed to be emotionally, kind of viscerally, like, disgusted with this, and like, oh, it's so off-putting. I wouldn't want to do that. Well, guess what? That's what God's done with us, because we're spiritually unfaithful. So that's the background here. Once you were not a people, now you spiritual whores, all of us included, now you're God's people. He went after you and he wooed you back to himself and made you his own. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. That's incredible. That is marvelous. That is awesome, amazing grace to spiritual prostitutes like you and me. So you can see how it would be important for us to look at how God has been merciful and gracious to us. And it will, like, in a sense, what you're doing is you're zooming out. Let's look at the box, (laughs) right? Look at the finished product. Look at what God is doing. Look at what God says And that will help us as we are trying to figure out the step-by-step of living our lives to his glory um, day by day. All right, point number three, reforming and reflecting. So this change from deformed to transformed happens when you're converted, when you turn from your sins, trust in Jesus, become a Christian. But it's not just a once-and-done thing. We need to be continually reformed and conformed to the image of Jesus so that we can clearly, brightly shine with his light. So Peter goes on in verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So the spirit, your new nature has desires, but your old nature, your selfish, prideful flesh also has desires and they are at war. So abstain, put that to death, starve the flesh and feed your soul and be empowered by the Spirit to abstain from those things. 
keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the nations, honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we are reformed, reformed. We were formed in God's image, now we're reformed, and we are reforming so that we can reflect God's worth, his grace, his character, his glory to those in the darkness, and they will see those good deeds called to be salt and light. Again, our ongoing transformation is vital to our light shining. Just as hypocrisy and scandal undermines Christian witness, so life change, the grace of God evident in our lives, shines the light of Christ. So Spurgeon said this, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. So may that not be the case, brothers and sisters. What is going to form us on a daily basis? Paul appealed to the Roman Christians. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this is a continual process. We need to continue to be reformed and transformed day by day so that we can reflect brightly, clearly God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples because our reflection of God's glory is intended to have an impact. It's intended to influence those around us. We are salt and light. We're supposed to have an impact. So point number four, reflecting to transform. Look again at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the nations, among the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So to some, our conduct is going to kick up opposition, right? They're gonna, we're, gonna be speaking of, we're going to be spoken of as evildoers. So you're going to be persecuted, will be opposed, will be mocked and ignored. But some will see our good deeds, Christ-like, grace-wrought deeds, and their mocking will turn into curiosity and openness. And some are going to be drawn to the light, and they're going to step out of darkness and into the marvelous light that we have shared with them. And when Jesus returns, they're going to glorify God on the day of visitation. And as that happens, we are being a royal priesthood, mediating the glory and grace of God to the nations. We are a light to the nations, just like God intended his people to be. So um, have any of you ever taken a magnifying glass? It's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen in the winter. Probably not. But in the middle of summer, especially on a really hot day, have you ever taken a magnifying glass and gotten some wood shavings or some dry leaves and you know, you harness and focus the sunlight onto that combustible material. And stuff happens, right? A little curl of smoke. And then poof, the material ignites. Anybody ever done that? If you haven't, like you guys have lived sheltered live, you should really should <laughs> pick up a magnifying glass and go do this as soon as you can. Um, so that's actually, in a sense, what Christians and what the church can and should do by ourselves, like that magnifying glass has no ability on its own to start a fire. 
It's just glass and metal. There's no power of its own, but it can direct the sunlight and bring it to burning focus and start a fire. So we, the church, by ourselves, like you and me on our own, we have no power to change anybody's life. But God can use our lives as we set our focus on excellent, marvelous, glorious God, like moons to the sun. God can use our lives to focus and direct his light onto the lives of others in life-changing ways. That's right. In our homes, wherever we have sphere of influence. So maybe you feel like, you know what? My light doesn't shine very bright. Okay. So is that perhaps because you need to set your focus more directly on the sun? Maybe also you need to be reminded that a four-watt nightlight can make a world of difference. You don't have to be a 100-watt floodlight. Like a four-watt nightlight makes a massive difference in the darkness. Or if we were to change the metaphor, even a muddy puddle can reflect the glory of the heavens. So let me read a quote here by J.R. Miller, um, and I'm almost done here. So we, this is hopefully to encourage you because I think we could all feel like we fail at reflecting clearly, brightly, radiantly the excellencies of God. And the goal here is not just to like grind your face in your guilt and shame. It's more so to say, one, God can use us, even us, and two, let's get our eyes in the right place so that we see the sun and can be changed and reflect his glory. Okay, so mud puddle and reflecting the glory of the heavens. We look into a little puddle of water at night and see the stars in it, or by day and see the blue sky, the passing clouds and the bright sun high in the heavens. So we look upon Christ in loving, adoring faith and the glory shines down into our soul. Then our neighbors and friends about us look at us, see our character, watch our conduct, observe our disposition and temper and all the play of our life. And as they behold us, they perceive the image of Christ in us. Again, despite our imperfections and sin and failures. We are the mirrors, and in us men can see the beauty of the Lord. A little child was thinking about the unseen Christ to whom she prayed and came to her mother with the question, is Jesus like anybody I know? The question was a reasonable one. It was one to which the child should have received the answer, yes, every true disciple of Christ ought to be an answer, in some sense at least, to the child's inquiry. Every little one ought to see Christ's beauty mirrored in its mother's face. Every Sunday school teacher's character should reflect some tracings of the eternal love on which the scholars may gaze. Whoever looks upon the life of any Christian should see in it at once the reflection of the beauty of Christ. Of course the mirroring never can be perfect. Muddy puddles give only dim reflections of the blue sky and the bright sun. Too often our lives are like muddy puddles. A broken mirror gives a very imperfect reflection of the face that looks into it. Many times our lives are broken, shattered mirrors and show only little fragments of the glory they are intended to reflect. If one holds the back of the mirror toward the sun, there will be in it no reflection of the orb of day. The mirror's face must be turned toward the object whose image one wants to catch. 
If we would have Christ mirrored in our lives, we must turn and hold our faces always Christward. If we continue ever beholding the glory, gazing upon it, we shall be mirrors reflecting him into whose face we gaze. Then those who look upon our lives will see in us a dim image at least, a little picture of Christ. So we exist to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. Through Christ. Even, listen, for instance, when you repent, you are showing yourself to be a completely different person. So the world is filled with non-apologies, right? Christians are not going to be perfect reflections But when we sin and fail, we can repent. We're not going to justify, blame, shift, downplay, rationalize. Christians confess our sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's how we refuse to walk in the darkness, even when there is still darkness within us. So being honest about the darkness within us that often breaks out is how we actually walk in the light and reflect God's grace and glory, that it is at work in us. So, brothers and sisters, last point, living on purpose. You know, big picture, the box, and the instructions, step by step. What is the motive? Like, what's the goal? What's the purpose of your life? What's your life set on? Your life is going to be set on something. What's it set on? You have things that you prize and treasure. What are they? We're going to reflect something. We're just wired that way. We're going to be a moon to some sun. And it's just so easy to muddle along, slaves to the tyranny of the urgent, head down, looking three feet in front of us. And this is just an encouragement, a call, a reminder to fix our eyes to face our marvelous, excellent, glorious God. So as we close here, Richard Baxter was at death's door at 35 and he started meditating on heaven 30 minutes a day. So he raised his gaze and he's fixing his his gaze on God's excellencies and his promises and all of that. And he wrote this book called Saints Everlasting Rest and he wrote this. If you would have light and heat why are you not more in the sunshine? For want of this recourse to heaven, your soul is as a lamp not lighted and your duty as a sacrifice without fire. Fetch one coal daily from this altar and see if your offering will not burn. Keep close to this reviving fire and see if your affections will not be warm. So let's get our souls in the sunshine so we can shine with God's light. We want to be moons, not black holes. I mean, the moon testifies to the presence, the reality of the sun, even when the sun can't be seen. So God wants us to live on purpose, God's purpose for our eyes, for our lives. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus and shine with his light. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing, Come People of the Risen King. So Lord, we... Thank you and we praise you that you have poured out all of this grace on us to make us your own, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own treasured possession. You've given us mercy and made us 
your people. Please help us to see and be overwhelmed with and grateful for and overjoyed with your excellencies and the marvelousness of your grace so that we want to proclaim it with our lips and with our lives.